0: This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.
1: Welcome to Navarro Live. I'm Michael Walker. I'm joined by Ash Sarkar. Coming up tonight, we'll be talking about Ed Balls. He's got a new band, um, American XL Bullies. Should they be banned? It's an issue close to my heart, as you'll find out. And um, we'll also discuss the Chilean coup of 1973 on its 50th Anniversary. Stay tuned for all of that. Let's get on with it. Rory Stewart is a former Tory MP who had the Conservative whip removed by Boris Johnson in 2019 after he rebelled over the issue of Brexit. But speaking to Navarra Media's own Ash Sarkar, he's waded in on another high profile politician to have the party whip removed, Jeremy Corbyn.
0: I want to move on from Jeremy Corbyn, but I mean, it's kind of striking that he's another 2019 casualty right? Incidentally, I think
2: it's disgusting. He was thrown out of Labour Party. Just as I also think it was pretty peculiar that Boris Johnson kicked out two Chancellor's exchequer, six cabinet ministers, Winston Churchill's grandson, and the rest of us out of the Conservative Party. I mean, it's mad. Jeremy Corbyn, whatever you think of him, is a major figure who represents a very significant part of Labour history and heritage. He was the leader of the party.
0: Why do you think his Starmer did it?
2: I think he is running a very controlling business with about three or four people trying to micromanage the Labour Party. I think he lacks confidence. I mean, I, I, I believe in politics as being about embracing difference and compromise and persuasion and conversations amongst different people. I was proud to be in debates on Afghanistan with Jeremy Corbyn. I listened to him carefully. Paul Flynn I likes a lot. And I think that Parliament is better when it encompasses those people. Now, I don't think that's necessarily about the voting record, but I definitely think it's about voices and personalities.
1: So the full interview will be out on Sunday with Ash Sarkar.
2: Interesting comments there, though, from
1: Rory Stewart. I mean, basically, that's what we say in our Media, isn't it? it's it's important that the Labour Party should be a broad church. Um, Jeremy Corbyn, clearly a significant figure. Yes, Keir Starmer won a democratic leadership election. He might have lied in it, you know, so that might question, uh, it might lead you to question the legitimacy of his leadership. But, he, you know, he won that election. I think the Labour left were fairly willing to take on sort of junior roles in that coalition. How did Keir Starmer respond? He kicked out Jeremy Corbyn. Now Diane Abbott also gone. A purge, basically, of the left. Um, Let's go to another centrist voice who had something to say about Keir Starmer's judgment this weekend. That was Andrew Marr.
3: Here's what he said on a new Statesman podcast about crumbling Britain. We are all hoping that they're saying one thing before the election and we'll do something slightly different afterwards because we all know, we look at the numbers and we look at the taxation take and we look at the strategy and we know that they are going to have to do radical things if they're going to be a successful government that they are not talking about now for electoral reasons. So in a sense, we are all complicit in a certain dishonesty in British politics. Well, call that out, mind. Andrew, if you want to. Oh, I, just, I, think I, I think I just have, I'm not... I mean, we are, we are completely, we, we think yeah. that they're going to do more than they say they're going to do now. And if they don't do more than they say they're going to do now, I think they're going to run into terrible problems with growth in particular. I just don't see how we're going to be able to grow the economy without a much better trading relationship with the trading bloc next door. And I don't see how we're going to have a more, uh, a fairer uh, economy in which ordinary working families feel that they are being treated properly unless we look again at the tax system. Mm. And you know, then there's all the other issues like the vast number of jobs which are going to be taken out quite soon by AI. I hope people inside the Labour Party are thinking about this and 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 where those where those people are going to work and how they're going to deal with the the political and the economic fallout. I kind of slightly doubt it, but I really hope they are. I just think when they come in, and they see this storm of problems coming ahead, and they are going to have to be much tougher and more radical than they they're talking about at the moment. It's very interesting that this is now being
1: said you know, very often actually in sort of the centrist establishment that Labour's plans don't add up, right? They they must be planning to do something in office, which they're not talking about now. Otherwise, it's not going to work, right? They seem to be saying we don't have to increase taxes because we're just going to get growth. um, And that's how we're going to improve public services or this magical idea of public service reform, which is suddenly going to make everything better, even though the problem is that they've been underfunded for 13 years, right? So it doesn't add up. I've always pointed about, you know, one way to get growth would be a closer trading relationship with the European Union. Also interesting, something that the Labour Party don't want to talk about. Now, I suppose Keir Starmer's people will say, look, if if we're being trashed in the New Statesman podcast, that does not matter. No swing voters listen to the New Statesman podcast. And I absolutely agree with them. That's, True. I don't think a political party should really worry if it's being criticized on the New Statesman podcast. I mean, neither should it worry if they're being criticized on Navarra Media, to be honest. Neither of of the New Statesman podcast, nor Navarra Media are going to swing the next general election. The issue here, I suppose, is that what will happen if they do get into power when they have to suddenly decide that their policy program has to be completely different to the one which they promised at the election. Now, I suppose Keir Starmer is hoping that what's going to be the case is that It would be just like the Labour leadership election where he made a bunch of promises and then broke them all afterwards and then people were willing to ignore that. Now when he was sort of lying to the Labour membership, he got away with that. When it's the British public in general, it's obvious to me that that will be so easy.
0: We ended up having a really wide-ranging conversation for just over an hour. And we talked a bit about his new political memoir. But I also really wanted to ask him the kinds of questions that you don't see him being asked. And I think it's because of that positioning as the sort of Tory who got the whip removed by Boris Johnson. It meant that he became very, very easy for liberals to approve of. And I think that there are certain things about his politics which have never really been interrogated before Um, particularly from the left. So as you saw, we discussed Jeremy Corbyn. What's quite interesting is that he raised his objections to Jeremy Corbyn having the whip removed without any prompting from me. Um, But we also talked about why he has such a negative view of Boris Johnson as an individual, but not Theresa May or Amber Rudd for their roles in the Windrush crisis. We talked about the relationship between the intelligence services and elected politicians. And we also had a really interesting conversation about the things that his father did while a colonial official in Malaysia. So it definitely wasn't a softball. It was very interesting. And there's some stuff in there that he says... On the record that no journalist has ever asked him in public before, so I think it's worth a watch, but I'm very biased
1: wow I look that, that that does sound incredibly interesting, especially the spy stuff. um That's what I wanted him to be asked on camera. Uh, can I get a comment from you also on on the Andrew Marr thing? You've got sort of this this bunch of sort of journalistic establishment people um now sort of increasingly admitting that you know something about the story Keir Starmer is telling the country doesn't quite add up.
0: Keir Starmer's campaign was one of the most flagrantly deceptive political campaigns run in living memory, and it was a deception that was carried out with the full knowledge of many portions of our media class, the insiders, the people who've got spads on speed dial. They all knew that his left-wing pitch to the Labour Party membership was going to be ditched at the earliest available opportunity. Now, despite that being common knowledge at the time of his campaign, that wasn't something that journalists saw fit to share with the public, which made them complicit in the deception, a party to the deception. So, yes, now you are seeing more journalists, including journalists from outlets who are broadly very sympathetic towards the Keir Starmer project, or more precisely, were very um, opposed to the Jeremy Corbyn project, they're now sort of saying, okay, well, you know, he's not telling the truth on these issues. He's refusing to, you know, alienate aspects of, you know, his, the swing voters that he's looking to court. And that's maybe um, adding up to a politician who, who's who got nothing of substance or of principle to say. Sure you're saying all these things and it's true, but those are things which have been true for a very long while.
1: Let's go straight on to our next story. Today is the 50th anniversary of the coup in Chile. The military action that unfolded on the morning of September the 11th, 1973, brought an end to President Salvador Allende's democratically sanctioned transition to socialism in the country. Just three years earlier, Allende narrowly took power with his left-wing coalition, Unidad Solidar, promising a peaceful leftist revolution. It planned to carve a distinctive Chilean path to socialism, one that ran between the Cold War wings of the Soviet Union and the US. But from the start, right-wing Chilean politicians and US interventionists were against that revolution, as were, crucially, the Chilean military, backed by Western powers. By eight a.m. on September the eleventh, nineteen seventy-three, the army led by General Augusto Pinochet had taken control of most of the country outside of central Santiago, and the air force bombed radio and television stations in the capital, blocking communications. By nine a.m., the military called for Allende's surrender, threatening to bomb the presidential palace unless he agreed. Instead, Allende broadcast this defiant address.
2: Este momento, Villa Amargo, donde la traición en de Puebla. Sigan ustedes sabiendo
1: que mucho más temprano que tarde, de nuevo, abrirán
0: la grande salameda por donde pase el hombre libre, para construir una sociedad mejor. ¡Viva Chino! ¡Viva el pueblo!
2: ¡Vivan los trabajadores! Estas fueron mis últimas palabras, y tengo
0: la certeza de que en el sacrificio no se les paro.
1: In the early afternoon, Allende ordered the defenders of the presidential palace to stand down as soldiers stormed the building while the Air Force bombed it from above. Allende then shot himself using an AK-47 gifted him by Fidel Castro, both refusing to flee the country or be used for propaganda by the military regime. The end of the Allende government marked the beginning of a 17-year dictatorship in Chile as well as a reign of terror for leftists. Immediately after the coup, 40,000 workers, students, and artists were rounded up and imprisoned in Chile's national stadium. Over the next three years, the number arrested across the country would reach 130,000. It's estimated that 40,000 Chileans were tortured over the course of the Pinochet regime. 4,000 were murdered or forcibly disappeared, some thrown from planes and helicopters over the ocean. Only 310 bodies of the disappeared have been recovered so far. Estimates of those yet to be found range between 11 and 1,500. A further 30,000 Chileans were deported only to be monitored by security forces wherever they went. In total, around 200,000 Chileans were forced into exile by Pinochet's violent regime. This was Pinochet's justification for that violence.
3: As far as politics are concerned, Chile will have to continue being what it has always been, a democratic, freedom-loving country, with freedom to worship, to think, to work, not a normal democracy. It must be strong to repress anything which might try to destroy this idea of democracy.
1: That was overthrowing a democratically elected leader to defend democracy and then not have elections for 17 years. Doesn't quite add up. In 1990, Chile rit- did return to democracy with the election of Patricia Alwin, leader of the centre-left coalition Constatacion. But during the transition from military rule, Pinochet was granted immunity in Chile, meaning he wouldn't face justice for his crimes. And he continued to exert political influence. That changed in 1998 when the general visited London for medical treatment. He was finally arrested under an international warrant for human rights abuses issued by a Spanish court and placed under house arrest in Surrey. A legal wrangle followed with former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher calling for Pinochet to be released and returned to Chile. This was her argument.
4: The chance of Senator Pinochet's receiving anything resembling what we in Britain would recognize as justice in a Spanish court is minimal. Not least because key witnesses for his defense run the risk of immediate arrest if they set foot on Spanish soil.
1: That's right, Pinochet couldn't be put on trial because the other torturers and murderers who might defend him would then risk being arrested themselves. There was also then a PR blitz suggesting Pinochet was too frail to be put on trial. But not everyone bought that argument. During the dispute over Pinochet's arrest, Chilean exiles in Britain staged protests and actions around Parliament in 1999. As the Lords debated Pinochet's arrest, they planted a forest of trees, a forest of 3,000 crosses, in Parliament Square, one for each of the known victims of Pinochet's murders and disappearances. That action gave birth to Eco Memoria, an organisation marking today's anniversary by planting 3,000 trees in Curacatin, southern Chile. Each tree marks a victim of the Pinochet regime and the forest that will result is a response to the mass deforestation that took place after Chile embraced rampant neoliberalism in the Pinochet years. Miriam Bell-Marco is a co-founder of Eco Memoria who escaped to the UK in 1974. She spoke to me earlier from Chile.
4: We had high expectations in terms of doing something against the coup, but nothing was happening. And then we, we started hearing all the horror stories about people being, for example, there were things that the military were picking up, young people that had long hair, males. And they would cut their hair in public. Women that were wearing wearing their their, um, trousers, they would cut them up. We uh, started looking for my father because we couldn't find him. We couldn't communicate with him. My mother and my sister went everywhere, hospitals, morgues, um, you name it. And we found my father uh, two months later uh, in a concentration camp in the south of Chile called the... Kirikina Island, run by the Navy, trying to remember um, how we had to start hiding everything, books, music, burning things in the back garden so that if the military came to our house, um, uh, they wouldn't find them because anything that was related to Agenda's government was perceived as, you know, you'd be, you could be detained. And if you were detained, you didn't know what what, what was coming, where to, whether you ever come back.
1: How did your family come to the decision to to leave Chile?
4: Well, uh, in 1974, the DINA, the secret police, they came to our house in the middle of the night during the curfew, searching for me. I wasn't there. Otherwise, I would probably not be telling you the story. And then my father, who was by now, he'd been in, in, in torture, yeah, and uh, um, it, by now he was in, in the public prison, he knew that, that there was no other way out but to get out of here. In fact, he said if hell did not exist, Pinochet created it. And my father, obviously, he was anguished that um, we should get out of the country as quickly as possible.
1: How is the coup remembered in, in Chile now? So I know that, you know, Pinochet in a way was sort of welcomed back into the country almost, and there are now 36% of the population who tell pollsters that they thought the coup was a good thing. So I mean, you know, obviously we as leftists in the West are saying, w- what an awful thing. I mean, what is the majority public opinion in Chile itself?
4: Do you to take to shape the, the um, silence among criminals, protected them from the crimes that they committed. There was nothing, no information coming out. But also you have to remember that Chilean people were were persecuted, were tortured, disappeared, executed. And 17 years of dictatorship don't pass in vain. During those 17 years, there was a very strong an ongoing, resistance movement against dictatorship. Today, for example, we are in the south of Chile, in Temuco, sharing uh, this commemoration with um, the relatives of the victims, as well as we are at the University of uh, the Frontera U- UFRO. And you can see the students actively um, expressing their awareness of what the dictatorship meant. If the polls say that 36% of the people uh, still support the coup and uh, justify the coup, we say that the crimes committed against the Chilean people cannot be forgiven, and they must be prosecuted, they must stand trial,
1: that was Miriam Belmarco speaking to me earlier today. Um, Ash, I want to go to you on this story. I mean, it is, you know, I suppose Allende is is, is the classic example of when sort of uh, a democratic road to socialism was tried and then overthrown because the ruling class couldn't stand it, both within Chile and backed by the US and, and the CIA.
0: Yeah, it is the classic example because the anti-democratic coup against Allende was actively aided by the American military I mean when you have the tanks launching um, attacks on the presidential palace you have an American warship just you know parked out there off the coast. So it was something that was done with the uh, active participation and validation of Western states. Uh, there was also huge amounts of covert funding for right-wing paramilitary groups as well as support for the military in their coup against a democratically elected socialist government. But one of the things I'm wary of doing is presenting the coup and the awful crimes against humanity that followed, um, the disappearances, by, by which we mean state murder, of, um, of individuals. These aren't things which are just confined to the past. So, of course, there are many families still reckoning with the losses that they experienced during that time, people whose loved ones simply disappeared into thin air and they don't know where their bodies are, they don't know where their remains are. But Chile is still gripped by the militarization of its police force. People who were active participants in Pinochet's regime, they didn't just go away. I mean, many still work for different arms of the state. Gabriel Boric is uh you know when he was a student activist he promised to curtail and to restrict police powers to deal with the way that they are able to this day to torture to beat to even murder with utmost impunity. Now that he's in power, it's a very different story. Uh, In recent months, he's just passed a raft of measures, which include $1.5 billion uh, for the Chilean police force and new powers as well, including a quick trigger law, uh, which gives police even more scope to react with lethal force when they feel that their lives are threatened. these are things which are happening because the balance of power in Chile is still very much in favor in key ways with this militarized police force. And that's a legacy of the Pinochet regime. And it's something which, you know, operates as, as an obstacle and a block to social change today um, and is also costing people's lives today. I've been speaking with two friends who were in Chile uh, during the student uprisings. You know, they've witnessed Friends of theirs being killed in front of them. Um, you know, th- th- these are acts of violence um, and political repression, which aren't just confined to the mists of time. They're happening today, and I think that it's sometimes difficult for the left to talk about it because you don't want to be seen undermining, you know, a, democly- a democratically elected left wing president in Latin America. Now, that's understandable, but you have to talk about. Uh, why these structures of violent policing have been left intact. Mainstream media in Britain isn't meant to keep us informed. It isn't about relaying facts or providing useful context. More often than not, it exists to serve the rich and the powerful. But we say, fuck that! You fund us, listeners like you who have chosen to back independent, truthful media. If you can, please consider donating one hour's wage per month or whatever you can afford at navaramedia.com forward slash support. We couldn't do this without you, so thank you.
1: Let's go on to our next story. The American XL bully dog breed looks set to be banned. That's after a number of high-profile attacks culminating in this scene in Birmingham on Saturday. Now, a warning before we show you this clip, it is pretty distressing. (laughs) So from reports, we know the dog attacked an 11-year-old girl and then two men who were trying to stop it. All three were taken to hospital. Worth saying, incredibly brave people um, who tried to to intervene um, and obviously, you know, an incredibly vicious dog. Um, An eyewitness, Nasir Udin, posted this on Facebook. Most craziest thing me and my family just witnessed. A little girl was bitten by a brown dog and locked on. Several people was trying to get the dog to release on Borsley Green Road. By the time I went up to the dog with a bar I had in the car, it released the girl. It then went after another boy. My little girl and wife was screaming. I hope the girl and the boy are fine and receive treatment and the dog is caught and dealt with. Why do people walk these dogs without a leash knowing their reputation? of course, any dog without a leash on a busy road like that should not be acceptable. Following an outcry over that video, Home Secretary Suella Braverman announced this. This is appalling. The American XL bully is a clear and lethal danger to our communities, particularly to children. We can't go on like this. I have commissioned urgent advice on banning them. Um, The Sun has now launched a campaign as well. So you can see here, ban XL devil dogs. And then they've got a picture um, of a very vicious looking American bully. Now before I go to Ash, I need to declare an interest in this story. This is the dog I co-own with my ex-partner. I have her around two nights a week or so. She is half American bully and the other half is Staffy, and and, and probably something else. Now we got her six months after her previous owners couldn't handle her and she is a handful. I can't deny she is a handful but as you can imagine, um, I'm not too keen on her being put down. Um, I'll have more to say on this. Um, First though, Ash, what is your view on, I mean, this god-awful clip, and then how it has escalated into being uh, a ban of the whole breed, and within a fairly short space of time, it must be said.
0: I mean, first of all, I think you chose a photo of your dog called Moose uh, in an attempt to make her look cute, but the photo clearly shows her having to be restrained by no fewer than six women on a crowded (laughs) tube carriage, which I think shows that she's a a clear and immediate uh, threat to those around her. I mean, look, I think I differ a bit more from you on this issue, because yes, there are some significant caveats here. I have a sense of fear around these dogs which is elevated because I'm seeing these videos of American bully XLs attacking people in the street. There was a really awful video of a woman in Lambeth being attacked by three dogs when she was walking down you know through the park and I recognize that the level of fear that I'm experiencing is being amplified by seeing these videos and it's not necessarily the most measured or rational response to the level of threat that's there in the environment. But I live in an area where quite a lot of young men have these American bully XLs. Very often they're not neutered and more often than I'd like they're off the lead even when walking up and down the street. And I find myself you know walking home the other night it was fairly late and my cat had gone running out when I'd opened the front door so I knew that he was on on the street. And I was walking up towards my house. What my cat often does if it's out there on the street um, and he sees me walking towards the house is that he runs towards me because he's really, really happy to see me. And behind me was a guy with a massive, unneutered American bully XL. And I was suddenly terrified about what happens if my cat comes running out to greet me like he often does. And I scooping up to pick him up when I've just read a news story two days ago about a woman who was attacked when she was out with her infant child and her dog because an American Pulley XL had spotted the dog and spotted the fact that she'd picked up the dog to to keep it safe. And I felt really kind of freaked out. You know, I felt genuinely quite unsafe. Now, I know that feeling unsafe and being unsafe can be two different things, but I think that we've got to recognize that people feel this way about this particular breed of dog because it seems that it's not merely an issue of irresponsible dog ownership. It seems that there are some problems here about temperament, uh, the fact that they descend from a very narrow pool of dogs. Their ancestors are, you know, these like American fighting dogs. There's an awful lot of inbreeding. And that because of their size, because of their strength, because of, you know, the strength of their bite, if this is a kind of dog which is out of control for whatever reason, It's a lot more dangerous than a cavapoo or a chihuahua being out of control for whatever reason. So, Michael, you know, I love Moose. I think that she's a very cute dog. I don't think she should be put down, but I think that common sense measures would certainly be a breeding ban, mandatory neutering. And I guess I feel like I want your dog to be able to run free and to experience the best that life has to offer. But as a member of the public, I can't tell the difference between a responsible dog owner who has a good relationship with their dog, a dog that's going to respond to vocal commands and a dog that's not. And so if I'm in public space and I see a dog like that off the lead, it's like, "Mm, how much of a risk am I taking with my safety? Or if I'm, you know, with a little kid, the safety of a kid or the safety of another pet. So maybe mandatory leashing as well
1: for big dogs. Yeah, I mean, so the only thing we maybe disagree on is mandatory leasing. Before, Before, leashing, sorry, before we go on, I do want to say, because I am, we actually don't disagree that much and I am actually more on the side of you than I am of the RSPCA and because they take a, you know, a, fairly uncompromising position on this because animal welfare charities tend to be opposed to breed specific legislation. This is legislation which affects a particular breed. So at the moment, mainly pit bulls and I think free other breeds. And the discussion is whether to add American bullies to it. Now the RSPCA um, has a campaign to remove this altogether. So they want to legalize all dogs. This is the words from their petition. So, end laws marking dogs as dangerous by how they look. August 2023 marked the 32 anniversary of breed-specific legislation in the UK. That's 32 years of dogs being judged as dangerous based on how they look. That's thousands of innocent dogs put down for no reason. We believe focusing on the type of dog rather than their individual actions is a flawed and failing approach. We are very concerned to see more discussions around adding another type of dog to the banned list. Dog aggression is highly complex and taking a breed-focused approach is fundamentally flawed. And then in their petition, they also say, the current laws don't work. Breed-specific legislation fails to protect public safety and hasn't achieved what it's set out to do. Hospital admissions due to dog bites continue to rise year on year and tragic fatalities as a result of dog incidents have continued. Um, And then they say, recent serious and fatal dog bites have caused a media frenzy over dangerous dogs. The law needs to be urgently reviewed and reformed, but adding more dogs to the Dangerous Dogs Act, will only see history repeating itself. Now, I have to say, there's been a lot of sort of critiques of the RSPCA. And actually, it's worth noting, the RSPCA are basically backed here by all the dog charities and most of the animal charities, right? So it's the RSPCA, Battersea Dogs and Cats Home, the Dogs Trust, the British Veterinary Association, which is quite significant, and the Kennel Club, all say breed-specific legislation is bad. Now, I kind of disagree with them as a owner of a half bully, they are harder to train. They are more powerful. And I do think that they have, basically we were looking for a Staffy Cross when we got her. And I think Staffies, they have a similar reputation to the bullies, but they are, they're a much older breed. I think they have been sort of bred with a you know a bigger gene pool. They are, I think they are the best dogs. They're complete angels. And um, it used to be that Staffies were the dogs that sort of everyone got and then it sort of moved over to bullies. Now I think the move over to bullies has been a problem. You know, I think if we got a dog again, we wouldn't get a bully because they are harder to train than the staffies. And I do think that it would be legitimate and actually necessary, to be honest, to ban breeding them. I would say mandatory neutering for all of them. Um, Also, I mean, every dog in a busy place or public place should be on a lead, especially a big dog. I suppose the only way I disagree with you, Ash, is I do think that there is a difference between saying we need to end the production of these dogs. I don't think there is any real downside to people when they get a dog saying, well, I'm going to get a staffy instead of a bully and then it will be less of a risk. My concern is only that there's lots of people who've bought a dog, um, grown up with the dog, love the dog, and now uh, a retrospective law means that their dog, however it behaves, so it might be really well trained, it might be really friendly. I know Moose is just loves all human beings. Um, she does snap at dogs, which is why we have to be very aware of that and you have to manage it. But there are moments when we're on Hackney Marshes Big field. There are other big dogs around, and they all get to run around, expend some energy, have a good time, and y- you can manage that by looking around. Is there? You know, I, I never ever worry that she's going to harm a person. But if there is a you know a mum with a young child, I'll say, Moose, come on, you know, don't go over there, or come on the lead, or whatever." Um, so I do think that. I-, I suppose what I what I'm saying is that because people brought up dogs in good faith, I think this sort of public drive to say. I'm not saying you're saying kill all those dogs, but the sort of public drive to say the interest of these dogs and these dog owners is completely irrelevant because they are a public menace is is a little bit harsh, especially when it's based on, you know, a video and a you know, a few incidents.
0: But here's what I think the decision is, right? You've got a choice, I think, between some kind of licensing and registration system for dog ownership. And that might not be for all dogs. It might be over a certain weight. So I know that in Spain, that there are special rules that kick in once you have a dog that's heavier than 20 kilos. They've got some dangerous dog legislation, which covers a few breeds, but to the best of my knowledge, I don't think it names the breeds in the legislation. Um, so it means that they're less tied to appearance-based characteristics, which is one of the reasons why the Dangerous Dogs Act in this country has proved so unworkable. Um, because American Bully xls even though they fit the spirit of what the legislation was trying to rule out, because the legislation is tied to this like one article from the 1970s and it says, we will ban dogs that look like this. American bully excels don't fit the bill, and so that's why you've had this, you know, increased prevalence of these dogs. I think that's something like that Spanish style system where you do have to have um, some form of licensing for dogs particularly heavy and rules which kick in for when you've got those dogs. That's one way in which you can control uh, the spread and the ownership of dogs which can be potentially dangerous. Or you can have what we've got now, which is basically an unregulated market for buying dogs but in order to try and prevent the most dangerous breeds falling into the hands of owners who can't control them you've got some bans on what dog breeds you can have I think that that's the choice that we've got in front of us and like I said I'm a cat owner I literally don't have a dog in this fight all I want is to be able to walk down my street or walk to the park without worrying that there is the dog being owned by some young guy that's going to rip out my throat? I think that's fairly reasonable as an ask.
1: That's very reasonable. That's very reasonable as an ask. And as I say, like dogs should be on leads. And I, I mean, I think where you let off your dog should be, you know, dependent on how big the dog is. So I think big, big empty field, you're probably going to be fine with a big dog. Small little park, probably keep it on the lead. But I suppose uh, how these d- laws currently work, let's say, is essentially that if you've got a banned dog, it can be picked up by the police. They take it away. I think actually they might be obliged to take it away. They take it away. There is a judgment about whether it's dangerous or not, which to me sounds like it's probably going to be quite arbitrary because a dog sort of in a pen is going to be quite stressed out anyway. And then if they judge it to be arb- arbitrary, I think they kill it on the spot. And if they don't, they give it back to you, but you have to keep it on a lead with a muzzle its whole life. And I suppose if we can all design our sort of ideal, fairest policy that might be around, but if you've got thousands of people who you know have these dogs who are their best friends and many of them perfectly trained, Perfectly harmless, who then get put down. I mean, would you like? I suppose bad legislation versus no legislation. It's not a nice choice to have to pick between. But where where does one position ourselves on that spectrum? What do you think?
0: Okay, bad legislation or no legislation when it comes to dangerous dogs. I'll take the bad legislation. Mm right? And that's because I believe that the value of a human life is worth more than the value of an animal life. I know that there are very many people who will disagree with me. And I do respect that as an opinion. But I don't think anyone would disagree
1: with that opinion. I think the the issue, so where I would come from this, and actually, to be honest, I, I probably agree with you. When, if it's bad legislation versus no legislation, I probably would go with a bad legislation. As I say, I think they should stop breeding these dogs. I think people should go back to owning staffies instead of bullies. But I, I suppose what I object to is when people say what we're valuing is people over dogs. Because my concern with the mass euthanasia of shed loads of bullies is you've got lots of bullies whose owners are so committed and in love with those dogs that you're kind of taking away a family member and killing it. And so, you know, the utilitarian in me thinks that that should be taken a bit more seriously than maybe it is being taken by some in favor of... No,
0: no, I, I I absolutely do take that seriously. I really do. I suppose for me, there's a key question here, which you haven't addressed, Michael, which is how intrinsically dangerous are American bully XLs? Because like I said, they've got a pretty narrow gene pool that they're being drawn from. They're descended from fighting dogs, which are bred for aggression. And it's obviously really hard to tell when you read these media stories. but. Some of these quite horrific dog attacks, not all of them have been from really young, really inexperienced, you know, really irresponsible owners. I mean, there was that tragic case of a young woman who was out walking uh, multiple dogs. And the suggestion is that she was actually killed by her own American Bully XL. Now, she's a professional dog walker. She's clearly someone who was experienced with dogs. Uh, This was clearly a dog that she, you know, trusted and had a very good relationship with. and yet you know, she she died because of that dog. Um, and so I do wonder, is there something which is inherently more reactive, more aggressive about American Bully XLs that means that even people who are very responsible, very loving, very experienced dog owners aren't able to adequately manage that risk?
1: I suppose there's two questions there. So are they inherently more dangerous than other dogs? Absolutely. I think, you know, we didn't know that when we got the dog, but looking at the statistics since then... Absolutely. Also, she is more reactive than most other dogs. Now, as I said, never aggressive towards people. i um, have never harmed anything, but they are intrinsically more dangerous than other dogs. What I'm saying is, we need to say how dangerous are they? Absolutely. So it's a, it's basically a, a cost benefit. What is the the cost of euthanizing thousands of dogs to you know people's emotional well being when they sort of brought them up in a you know in a good faith way? They bought a dog when it was legal. They're in love with the dog. You can do do you mass euthanize them all to avoid the risk of that one generation of dogs causing some damage? Or do you say, actually, we're going to manage the existence of these dogs instead of killing them all? And I think basically, if, you, if you're new to them all and then all of them are, you know, all of them will be fairly old soon. So Moose was a bit crazy between one and two. We kept her on a lead between one and two. Now we let her off a lead in big spaces and she's fine. But I think it would be the case that if you're new to them all and don't kill them all, then you would end up with bully attacks basically ending um, or declining immediately and then ending within a couple of years because you would only have old, neutered dogs, which aren't particularly dangerous to anyone.
0: I mean, look, I agree with you. The bit where I think that maybe I don't is potentially around uh, mandatory leashing and muzzling. That's not a life that I want for a dog, right? And it's not something that I take casually, very impoverished experience of life for a dog. Um, But I think maybe I feel a bit differently from you about that simply because, again, it's really difficult to tell who a responsible owner is, who isn't, who's got good voice control over their dog, who doesn't. So I think off the lead in big empty spaces, sure, but parks where there are other people, other dogs, you know, leashing, unfortunately.
1: <laughs> what you do... Well, we won't go on about this too long. What you do with a big dog is you see other big dogs and you're like, do, does your dog want to play with my dog? And then they play and they run around and it's gorgeous. But... <laughs> I would settle for leashing and muzzling if it meant that they don't all get mass euthanized, which I do think is probably actually the most likely scenario at this point. I
0: actually I actually very quickly have a big dog story. It's very, very quick. So my brother-in-law has a dog. It's called Bill. He's beautiful. And he is a mix of all the scariest dog breeds. So there's a mix of like Mastiff, Great Dane, Rottweiler, Cane So This is a big fucking muscly dog. Um, and he is a very, very energetic dog. He's very sweet he's never been vicious he's never been aggressive and the good thing about my brother in law is that he's very sensitive about how other people perceive the dog so you know walk around um if there are people anywhere in eyesight straight back on the lead not because bill's going to do anything but just because it's a way of signalling to the other person hey I'm a responsible dog owner but one time, Bill did accidentally break somebody's leg because someone was playing with the dog, <laughs> um, had a ball in their hand, stepped back to throw the ball, and Bill was playing with another dog. They're chasing the ball, and they like collided with the standing leg. And I think that's an example of how like the problem isn't necessarily always aggression. And that is just kind of a freak accident. But it shows that even though you're doing all the right things and you're exercising the dog and you're very, very cognizant of where other people are a big muscly dog because they don't have great reflex control and not great at understanding where they are in space and like what the risk of of the behaviors are that's an example where someone like got really quite hurt the person whose leg got broken didn't hold it against the dog at all by the way like well i mean the issue there is that
1: that would that would apply to all big dogs right because bullies are definitely more inclined to be like genuinely aggressive than other dogs um, but all big dogs can run into someone and break their leg. Well,
0: That's yeah, just about being I, smart
1: about where you play catch with a big dog.
0: Yeah, and look, I'm not I'm not saying like put the dog down. The thing I'm saying is that like there are all sorts of risks associated with having a big dog. Hmm. And I think like when you see it with like American bully XL ownership, I think that people can be quite casual about what those risks are, or even have a, a sense that they really know what the risks are and and they don't. And they'll step back, trying to throw a ball and that big furry ball of muscle is going to whack into your tibia.
1: Yeah, that would be an argument for licensing all big dogs. I just, wanted, I just don't want my dog to get killed by the state, but um, I know there are lots of strong opinions about this one. We'll move on from this story. Daniel Khalif may have not got further than Chiswick after escaping jail, but GB News' Martin Daubeny couldn't even get to the end of his autocue.
5: First, it's the news headlines. No, it's not. We're going straight to me. This is breaking news. It's fast happening. Because as we just said, um, the the terror man... (laughs) It's It's here. Chip Chapman, uh, we have him coming up soon on the arrest of the terror suspect. He He escaped from Wandsworth prison and he's been apprehended. It's all coming up in GB News. We've got our first guest. Here it is. Police of escape have arrested prisoner <laughs> Daniel Khalif. Beg your pardon, we're getting the Oscar in the right place. This story is just happening. Joining me now for the latest is GB News Home Security editor, Mark White. Are you there, Mark? It's Chip Chapman. We have Chip Chapman, Army um, for the Army Anger, former head of counter-terrorism, Major General Chip Chapman. Chip, dramatic breaking news. This is breaking news. It's fast happening
1: uh ash how would you feel if that's how you broke the news of the terror man um being, <laughs> <laughs> being arrested
0: um i mean look first of all reading from an auto queue can be really hard and i've had those moments where it's like i'm illiterate all of a sudden i think it just went on for so long it was yeah. like you know when you trip and you fall up the stairs and then suddenly like every step you take after that is just like uh uh fast happening terror man we've got the escape man, Chit Chapman. Let's go. I mean, I don't know. Did you? Was there a part of you which was like, "Yes, this is very funny," but there, but for the grace of God, go I.
1: Well, to be fair, I mean, it was. I'm, you know, my my intro was somewhat tongue in cheek because I presume what was going on there is that what was on the auto queue was slightly wrong. You know, it was breaking news. So sometimes when it's breaking news, I mean, we don't really do breaking news on this show. So you know as you say, there but by the grace of God. But I presume what you're supposed to do is, you know, you get it in your ear, you got it on a bit of paper, and then you sort of say, this has happened. They'll give you a couple of sentences, but clearly what, what was on his autocue was wrong. And then he tried to riff it, and he riffed it very, very badly. Um, I hope if I had to riff it, I wouldn't riff it quite that badly. Breaking news, fast, happening, terror man, arrested. <laughs>
2: Very it, good. Was, it
0: was just like you know when your id is at the wheel so you're just saying words it's like fast happening Terraman man go and to be fair we all understood what he meant
1: I do want to get some brief comment from you actually on the Terraman, um, because he didn't make it further than Chiswick now to me that you know on Friday's show me and Aaron discussed this at length I was saying there's two options one this guy is a uh, you know, an asset working with the Iranian security services and the reason he was able to escape this prison against all odds is because he had a really vast criminal network essentially behind him and that would suggest that as well as having a plan to leave the prison, he would also have a plan to leave the country within about 12 hours. The other option was that he was just a chancer who wanted to be famous, somewhat deluded, maybe had sent a few emails to the Iranian security establishment, a bit like when Paul Mason emailed that MI5 person because he thought, I've got information for you, and the MI5 person didn't really care. Um, And he's just a bit of a chancer, got a bit lucky. That would suggest he was still not too far from the prison. Does this probably mean we can assume that it was the latter of those, that he was a bit of a chancer and and not necessarily a, a fully paid up agent for a foreign state?
0: It sort of puts him in the maybe he's just some guy category. I mean, on Friday morning, I was doing BBC Radio 5 Live along with a former news editor for Sky News. My guy from Sky News, he had it in his head what the story was. He was like, there was inside help. London's crawling with Iranian assets. You know, he might be out of the country by now. And I was listening to all of that. And I was like, yeah, no, that that is one possibility. But another is that he's just some kid. Who could also take advantage of the fact that it's not a particularly well-run prison. It's understaffed. It's overcrowded. Clearly cultivated trusting relationships with, you know, decision makers within the prison who would, you know, determine whether or not he's working in the kitchens or he's under, you know, a, a lot more tighter security. And we just don't know. You know, we just don't know. All we have is that he's a terrorist suspect who managed to escape from prison. So it's one of those things where, like. I find it quite funny because you interact with journalists sometimes. And when you say, "Hmm, I think that this might have been what happened, they'll be like, well, you can only say what you can prove. You can't prove that. So anything which runs counter to establishment narratives, like can't prove that, can't say it. But when it's something which activates, I think, what some of their um, political beliefs are, their sense of what constitutes a threat, where threats come from then suddenly there's a very low burden of proof you just have to be like london's crawling with iranian agents must be one of them job done
1: let's go to our final story there is a new band in town they're called centrist dad and they made their debut this weekend in north london
0: i am the antichrist i am case. i know what I
1: Yes, that was ITV's Robert Peston singing a cover of The Sex Pistols. Keir Starmer and Ed Miliband were both in the audience. And though it was difficult to make out in that clip, Ed Balls was on drums.
3: That was in a street party in North London yesterday, the York Rise Street Party. That was the debut gig of Centrist Dad with um, Peston on uh, vocals. I was on the drums. Um, John Wilson, Chris Taylor on bass and guitar. We played The Ramones, The Clash...
0: Yeah, not to yeah. You know why they're called the centrist dads? You have to explain. It. It's a Corbyn reference, isn't
3: it? Um, that is not why. What
0: are why you calling
3: it? What? I'm just saying that, you know, that, that, that there were people who who, um, who did use that phrase. Right. Um, to attack people who were skeptical of Jeremy Corbyn. We chose it because we are all dads. It is the most and centrist. And we are all, you know.
5: You're centrist. Yeah, that was the most centrist dad how, how, and, I've ever and are... Middle sure? of the
3: road. It's
1: a very, very defensive reaction there from Red Bulls. I thought if you'd sort of named your. Your band Centrist Dad, you're kind of embracing that idea, right? Yes, it was a phrase that was coined during the Corbyn years. And yes, you know, Ed Balls could say, Yes, I'm celebrating that. We were right all along, blah, 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 blah. He's like, No, we're not called Centrist Dad because Corbynites called people Centrist Dad. No, it's completely, it's because we're Centrist and we're Dads. Mate, come on, it's a bit, of, a bit of fun, I thought. Ed Balls <laughs> hasn't just been getting cozy with political editors, but also former chancellors.
5: Welcome back. We had the inflation numbers this week. Everyone said that was good news for Suno, but are we talking about the wrong thing as Westminster now focused on yesterday's issue.
3: We know from the early 1990s, the last time we had that repossession, people losing their homes, the politics of that is that it last forever.
4: What kind
5: of idiot did this? If you are behind in the polls, you need to change course. I thought that put us on the wrong side of the argument. I bumped into Boris Johnson last night. Where something people don't talk about in politics. Always welcome to Political Currency, our new podcast with George Osborne and me, Ed Balls, in our fancy new home. We've got to talk about political autumn, arousing both parties about tax and welfare ahead of the general election. Michael Gove saying. So we've got a
1: lot of Ed Balls there, Ash. Comments on Eva Centrist Dad, the new band, or whatever their new podcast is called. What's it called? Um, political Political Currency. I suppose a pun on money and politics. Um, are you particularly interested by Eva? Will you be uh, subscribing to Eva Centrist Dad or Political Currency on Spotify?
0: I mean, look, let's first take the podcast. It's just a complete joke that these are two individuals that have made great hay about how much they disagree with each other. Whereas, in fact, Ed Balls, when he was... Uh, up against George Osborne as his opposite number, who was a Chancellor of the Exchequer. He accepted an awful lot of both the austerity framing and austerity policies that both people who are ideologically opposed to the socialist left. And they're both people who have embarked on, you know, various career second acts in order to launder their reputations. Ed Balls through light entertainment, George Osborne through well-paid speaking gigs at JP Morgan, uh, editing a newspaper, and then some more well-paid after-dinner speaking gigs for JP Morgan. Um, so you couldn't put a you know Rizla paper between the two of them, let alone say that there's some kind of meaningful political contestation. It is just liberal technocracy, the podcast. I'm sure that might be very interesting to some people, but I just I just don't think it is. It's just not interesting to me. Sorry. And as for centrist dads. I don't want to begrudge anyone their midlife crisis, but when you see people who have positioned themselves as roadblocks to social change in this country singing I am an anarchist, it's just kind of sickening, you know. And to not then um, be able to, you know, even be in on the joke You know, to get defensive, I just think you're the thinnest skin, like most rancid vibes people on the planet. And, you know, they were all at the one festival. I just wish the rest of the streets had gotten blocked off and that could have been their open air prison forever and we wouldn't have to deal with them.
1: (laughs) Sorry, let's end on that note, Ash. Um, It has been a pleasure speaking to you this evening. I I find it much, uh, much nicer talking about controversial things on our show than it is on twitter so that was very pleasant
0: what i'll say is that it's very odd that your dog is called moose and my cat is called moosa and my cat has never mauled any children despite not liking them very much so tabby cats very good option if you're worried about not being able to control an american bully XL.
1: You, you, you made that sound like my dog has mauled children my dog loves children she doesn't love anything more than hanging around with a toddler. Obviously, you know, I, would, I don't introduce her to toddlers without the parents saying, can they hang out with your dog? But when they do, she's bloody lovely. Uh, but anyway, we won't go back to that policy debate. Um, thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. This show will be back tomorrow from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.